case. Pope Not Hates are basically controlling Britain. Pope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news credit. Hello and welcome to the Hope Not Hate podcast. Um, this is the latest in a series we've been doing for a while where we interview academics, historians, social scientists about various elements of the far right. We've had some great ones if you want to check out previous ones with uh, Dave Renton about the contemporary British far right, and Professor Paul Preston at the LSE about the Spanish Civil War. And we have an exciting interview today with um, kind of a long-term friend of Hope Not Hate um, and a brand new book that's just come out. It's available in the UK. Um, today we have uh, the Stanley Wade Shelton Professor in the Social School of Public and International Affairs at the really beautiful University of Georgia, uh, Mr. Cass Mude. Hello. Hi, Joe. Hiya. How's things? Good. Good stuff. So we've got your new book, which we're going to be talking about today. For those um, who haven't seen it yet, it's called The Far Right Today. It's got a very striking cover. It's a kind of essentially the Trump hat, make America great again, but it says The Far Right Today. Um, this is out in bookshops at the moment. Um, I thought just as a start, Cass, maybe the best thing to do is if you could just give us a quick introduction or overview about what the book's about, what it covers, and then we'll, we'll dig in a bit deeper in a second. Yeah, so essentially... What the book is about is what I call the fourth wave of the far right. Um, and so in the literature, we do, uh, distinguish three waves of post-war far right, which was a first short wave in uh, 45 to 55 of neo-fascism, and then a second wave of roughly 55 to 80 of so-called right-wing populism, mostly the Pujadist in France. And then in 1980, a third wave started, which is really with many of the parties that we know today, Front National, which is now Rassemblement National, FPO in Austria, Vlaams Belang, things like that. Um, but I argue that roughly in 2000, we have entered a, a different phase, and, and that's called um, the fourth wave. And the fourth wave is different in that the far right is much more heterogeneous. Um, we have massive parties, we have uh, individuals who are their own party, we have violence in all kinds of forms. And my argument is that although the far right is roughly similar in terms of what it offers uh, as to the third wave, in the third wave it was a challenger to the mainstream and today it has become mainstreamed and normalized and, and so that's what the book really is about. That's what, I mean, it's, it's really, really interesting. And one of the things I thought, well, I'd love to hear a bit more about really. So this, when you talk about this kind of mainstreaming process and this shift from the third to the fourth wave, um, what are we talking about? What are the drivers of this that you kind of, I mean, you cover a lot of this in the book, but what are these things about that have caused this mainstreaming? And I guess also, is this mainstreaming uniform? Are we seeing this all across Europe and, or all across the West more generally? Or are there kind of anomalies to that as well? Yeah, so... Um... It is not universal, and in general, like the far right, as all political phenomena are, are national first and, and like regional or global second. And so to understand the British far right, you need to take into account like the British political system and, and, and history and, and other things. But at the same time, you see, I mean, across regions, um, both in East and Western Europe, but also North America, um, you do see that the far-right themes, particularly radical right issues, as well as frames, have become adopted by the mainstream. Um, certain uh, 
statements or, or frames of the far right are now seen as common sense, for example, that like Islam is a threat to national identity or security, uh, that immigration is problematic. And so they've become normal. Um, it's important that this kind of mainstreaming is not so much because radical right parties moderate it, but it's much more that the mainstream has shifted to the right. Now, this is definitely not universal. Um, a country like the Netherlands is very far in terms of its mainstreaming. A country like Germany isn't. In in Portugal, there's virtually no radical right. Or just look at the difference between the United States, which has a far-right president who has, by and large, is transforming one of the two major parties into a far-right party. And then you have Canada, which still has, at best, a very marginal far-right phenomenon. Now, the causes are are diverse, but to me, the one of the most important ones is actually 9-11. And 9-11 was, of course, a watershed here in the United States, but it actually had a much broader effect, global effect, but particularly in the West, by making social cultural issues, particularly immigration and identity linked to Islam and Muslims, a fundamental uh, issue in politics and shifting the political debate from primarily socioeconomic to socio-cultural issues. Okay, I mean, it's really interesting. One of the things I think stood out there you said was uh, it's not necessarily about the moder or like the modernization or the kind of moderation of the far right. It's the mainstream coming or, or heading in a right-wing direction. How does that square with the kind of modernization programs that are often talked about when we think about the contemporary far right. So things like the Front National went on that journey, or um, you know the Swedish Democrats in, in in Sweden, or even the British National Party tried a bit in the UK. Do you think those moderation programs or modernization programs were disingenuous, or do you think they actually one of the reasons that they've been more successful in recent years is because they were real? Where do you fall on that debate? Yeah, I've actually never really seen the third wave as, uh, as some kind of devious ploy to hide fascism. Like to me, parties like Front National or Vlaams Belang or even Sweden Democrats were not fascist parties that, that adapted to a repressive uh, liberal democratic environment. Um, I think that these were modern phenomena that were busy with contemporary issues, most notably immigration, and that by and large had given, uh, had a, adopted and accepted democratic hegemony in the sense that they believe that democracy is the only system. Now, the struggle is not so much against democracy, but against liberal democracy. And so they, they do believe that people should elect their own leaders, uh, which fascists didn't. Um, but they then don't believe that minorities should have rights. And so I, I don't think necessarily that these parties change that much. And I don't think, honestly, that they change that much more recently. I mean, uh, Rassemblement National is really not that different from Front National and the Jean-Marie Le Pen. Um, there are a few updates, which is mostly with regard to I mean, gay rights, uh, things like that, which is much more a generational issue than anything else. Um, but on other issues, Marine Le Pen is more radical with regard to the European Union than Jean-Marie ever was. Um, so I, I think a lot has to do with marketing, um, like particularly when you think about Sweden Democrats. Sweden Democrats looks 
very soft. Marine Le Pen in her campaigns, they look soft. The type of colors they use, the logos they use, sunflower or a rose rather than a flame, things like that. But purely ideologically, the fourth wave is not fundamentally different from the third wave in terms of successful radical right parties. Okay, and you kind of mentioned 9-11 as one of these drivers that, that pushes the mainstream to the right on these issues. I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I completely agree. When you look at the United Kingdom, one of the things that I think it resulted in, if we look at the British far right, was it, in, or it kind of sped up this journey towards Islam and Muslims being the kind of forefront of almost everything that the far right was talking about in many ways. I think in the UK you might go back to, say, the Salman Rushdie affair. But we've seen a narrowing of, from like a broad anti-immigrant politics or, you know, anti-black politics, more explicit racism, etc., to a slightly narrower version which is much more about Islam and incompatibility. Is that something that we're seeing around the world or across the West or across Europe or is that kind of a uniquely British phenomenon? No, but... To a certain extent, what makes it more uniquely British is that it comes from race to to religion, um, because race as a as a category and as a term is really only used in the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, in Dutch, German, or French, or even Italian, um, the equivalent terms are only really used by racists. And so, since the end of Second World War, we have been talking about cultures and and ethnicities. But, but in essence, it's the same process, right? Where uh, initially, for example, the, the far right in Britain would be against like Pakistani, right? Paki bashing, right? And in the Netherlands, they would be against Turks or Moroccans. Those were, those were ethno-national terms, like there were different cultures linked to a country. Today, the Pakistani has become the Muslim, the Turk has become the Muslim. And so the ethno-national or ethno-racial in the U.S. and U.K. has become ethno-religious. And the advantage of that is thereby it could attach to a broader Islamophobic discourse from the mainstream in which Islam was seen as a fundamentalist religion that undermined like liberal democracy, separation state of church, as well as link it to the terrorism debate, and and that is where, like, really the the, the far right, the radical right in particular, had that 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 in on the mainstream because before that, it could only really attach to other ethnic nationalists, and there weren't so many. But arguments today of Islamophobes of both the mainstream right and the radical right are very similar. I mean, what they by and large do is reduce Islam to Islamism. Okay, and you you talking about so we've mentioned nine eleven um, in your book you, when we're talking about what's causing this kind of the mainstreaming or we're talking about the rise of the far right. Um, you also mention the so-called migrant crisis, um, and you also talk about um, the economic crisis of two thousand and eight. Uh, all all those kind of factors that have, have kind of got us to where we are today, um, and it that brings us, I guess, a little bit on to the kind of never ending or endless debate around culture versus economics as the driver of where we are today. Um, you talk about this a bit in your book, but um, where do you kind of fall on that debate? Yeah, I stand uh, on that in terms of like economic anxiety versus cultural backlash. I kind of take two positions. First of all, um, cultural backlash is clearly much more important. We have, we have decades of research that show 
that um, voters of, of far-right parties name immigration as the most important issue stand out in their opposition to immigration, not in terms of economics. At the same time, for most, for many people, there is a co there is a relationship between the two, and they're often conflated. And so, people have a racialized view of the economy when they believe that. When nativist people believe that there are a lot of immigrants coming into the country, they think the country is doing badly in all aspects, including um, in terms of economy, right? But it's still more driven by uh, culture than by economics. And you see that in, in Europe very clearly, the Great Recession actually didn't give that much of a boost to far-right parties overall to populist parties, but not so much to the far right. Whereas the so-called um, refugee crisis of 2015-16 gave a significant boost to the far right and did nothing for left-wing populist parties. So it is cultural backlash, but there is integrated in that are some economic arguments. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you there. I always get very suspicious if anyone ever falls completely one side or the other. Um, on that debate and says it's either all economics, like some of the Marxist historians, and, or, or, or it's kind of all culture, like some some of the people, or some other people. And um, I look forward, I mean, I'm biased as a historian, but I certainly feel that one day the historians will look back and probably say it's somewhere, as you say, in between the two. Um, one of the things, one of the highlights of the book I wanted to touch on briefly is, and um, there's a section on gender, there's a whole chapter on it, um, which I think is really, really important because I still think it's an understudied element of the contemporary far right, and I think it's such an important element of understanding the modern far right. Could you tell us a little bit about just why you've kind of got a specific chapter on that, and tell us a little bit about what you talk about in that chapter? Yeah, so in my 2007 book, I already had a chapter that I thought was on gender, but it was actually more on sex. So I had a chapter on um, men apartheid or men parties where by and large just looked at male and female representation in uh, populist radical right parties and I was talking about that with my wife who is also an academic and who teaches on on gender and who schools me regularly about um, what I all don't understand um, and since then I've just been looking at gender much more and it is just it really plays an important role and then I also saw a lecture by Michael Kimmel who focused not just on women but actually on masculinity and so I really wanted to do something on gender as a whole which looks both at sex and in the sense representation of, of women within the far right, but also on sexism, on femininity and on the importance of masculinity. And I think um, I think masculinity is something that devotes we should devote much more attention to. It clearly is very important in the smaller far right, extreme right groups, but it is also part of the attraction of leaders like Bolsonaro or Salvini. Um, and at the same time, you see uh, that it's just not so simple. There, there are different types of gender roles within the far right. Um, there are different types of sexism in the far right. And that shows on the one hand the heterogeneity, but also the adaptability of the far right. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I agree. And I think it's the, the, more, the more research is done on this, the better. And I think a lot of the groups that we monitor at Hope Not Hate, and especially a lot of the online movements, 
kind of masculinity is obviously central to the way they operate, but also the kind of the way that a lot of these people get into the movements is coming at it through kind of anti-female politics or anti-feminism politics. I just think it's really, really interesting. So I, I was really, really glad to see that chapter, chapter in the book. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I've got, um, towards the end of the book, you essentially talk about responses to the far right, which obviously is something that we're, we at Hope and I Hate are really, really interested in. Um, you say that you always get questioned on this and you don't have an answer, and I, I, I can certainly empathise with that a little bit um, from every event that we do as well. But you looked at all various different types of responses to the far right, and I was wondering if you might be able to kind of run us through what the various responses you've seen and what you think works and what you think doesn't work, and maybe we could have a chat about things that can, you know, we can do. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot de uh, depends on your view of democracy. Right? I mean, if, if you by and large think that the far right is, is an illegal uh, political force or should be, then it's pretty straightforward. Right? And you can just ban these parties and these groups and, and they can't exist. Now, my point is that, first of all, I don't believe that it's necessarily illegal, but I also don't think it strengthens democracy. Like you don't take away all the resentment that leads people to vote for these groups or, or become active in them. Um, and, and at the same time, what we see is that um, in most cases, when radical right groups start, they're being ignored. And the mainstream just hopes that if you ignore them, that they go away. But as soon as they get a little bit of, of momentum, the media is going to cover them and people are going to respond to them. And so true full ignorance barely ever happens. Now, then you have... Um, a co-optation, which is kind of what the normal uh, response is to groups that become more relevant, which means that the far right itself is being excluded, but its issues are being kind of adopted, co-opted by the mainstream in a more in a more moderate form. And then the ultimate form is collaboration, where you by and large just normalize the far right and, and say, okay, we're going to govern with you in the same way as we do with social Democrats or others. Now, obviously, um, collaboration is, is most problematic, but cooptation can also be very problematic. Because if you see, for example, in, in Belgium, where you have the so-called uh, Flemish nationalist NVA, which is a conservative party, and you have the Vlaams Belang, which is a far-right party, the NVA has almost fully adopted Vlaams Belang's points on immigration and on, on Islam. Um, and so they they start to adopt that, and it doesn't matter who adopts them, right? The, the problem is not so much radical right parties, the problem is radical right policies. And so there is this one kind of hypocritical approach that, that Biomet just externalized radical right politics and says, well, everything that's done by the radical right party is radical right, and everything that's done by the mainstream is by definition not radical right. But that's no longer the case. Today, a lot of radical right policies are actually implemented by the mainstream. And my argument is that the only way to, to really beat <clears throat> or contain the far right today is by thinking about, first of all, what you stand for yourself, be that Christian Democrat, liberal, social Democrat, whatever you are. And second of all, what the limits are in which you will collaborate with whomever. So that 
by the time that you are actually confronted with a potential coalition, it, it, not even in government form, but in sponsoring uh, activities, whatever it is, you understand what the limits are of your system. And I think what that requires is we should take the radical right serious because they're here to stay. Yeah, I think I think that's a really, really important point, especially this idea around collaboration. I think one of the, the one things that we're really scared about at Hope Not Hate, and me personally as well, is just the kind of crumbling of that cordon sanitaire, you know, and I think we're seeing that all over Europe, whether or not that's people, you know, Sweden's a good example, you know, the right-wing parties considering talking to the Swedish Democrats, which would have been pretty unthinkable not too long ago. Yeah, but or even in, even in the UK, we've got conversations right now between the Brexit Party and or possibilities of conversations with the Brexit Party and the Conservative Party, and, and that, that wall, those walls breaking down are really, really scary. But it's a logical consequence of, of two processes which are related to each other. First of all, particularly in Europe, like, party systems are fragmenting. We get more and more parties and more and more smaller to medium-sized parties. There's virtually not a country in Europe left that has two parties over, over 30%. And in various countries, you don't even have a one party of 25%. At the same time, far-right parties are doing better and better. And so a lot of countries now have a far-right party of about 15% of the vote. That means that they're the second or third biggest party in their country. So if you want to govern around them, it, it will require three to four parties. Right? That is disruptive. So in many cases... Governing without them is becoming highly problematic and, and perhaps not even the best strategy for a really right-wing party. My point is even right-wing parties should think about what the borders are. Even if they are going to work with the far right, they should do that only within the limits of liberal democracy. Hmm. Okay, and I guess that brings me on to my kind of final question, which is um, no one has a crystal ball, but uh, you look at these things very, very closely. What's the direction of travel here? Are we expecting things to get worse and more worrying, or have we hit kind of peak far right? Um, are we on the verge of a liberal democracy rallying and it's all going to be fine? Um, where do you think we're headed, Cass? Well, if you look at trends with regard to attitudes, then you just see that people are becoming more open to diversity um, because younger people who are products of a more diverse society are more tolerant. That doesn't mean that they're all tolerant, but they're much more tolerant than older generations. So in the long term, like uh, the long term works against the far right because the core issue for them is nativism and people are becoming less nativist. At the same time, um, I believe that the far right can still grow a bit electorally. I'm not sure whether they can have even more political influence because they have disproportionate political influence at the moment. For the last several years, like the far right voter has been pretty much the definition of the people and almost all parties have run after, after them and as a consequence of the so-called refugee crisis. But even the whole framing of the mass influx of asylum seekers as a refugee crisis like, is, is a success for the far right. Um, so I believe that we're kind of peaking. Um, at the same time, another so-called refugee crisis, which is very possible, Erdogan is playing with it the whole time, 
or another set of terrorist attacks, jihadi terrorist attacks, can lead to another peak. Right? But structurally, structurally, I think we're getting, we're, we're moving away from this, and we will have more and more people who stand against nativism. Now, of course, the key question in politics is who votes, right? And if if young people who are much more pro-diversity vote at the same rate as the older people, then, then politicians will shift very quickly. If they continue to vote very little and old people vote very much, then many parties will, will by and large just sit it out with the old people until that is no longer a viable strategy. There you go. That's that's Kasmude backing Hope Not Hate's voter registration campaign. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant. Uh, thanks for your time, Cass. It's really, really appreciated. Always interesting to chat to you. Um, for those of you listening, um, Kasmude's new book, The Far Right Today, is out. It's on Polity Books. You can get it from all good bookstores. You can buy it online. Um, it's available everywhere. I'd thoroughly recommend it. For those of you looking for a really interesting, engaging um, kind of introductory book as well. It's, it's got a really interesting history at the beginning of the post-war period. There's loads of stuff in here for people that want to kind of start off a book collection on the far right as well. Um, so please do go and have a look. Also, please go back and listen to the other podcasts in this series where we you know, talk to academics and historians. Um, there's loads of good stuff in there. And if you do enjoy it, please consider becoming um, a member of our Hope Action Fund, which is you can donate a few pounds a month um, and it supports our work all across the organisation. Um, and follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, but I can't remember all the addresses, but if you just Google us, it'll turn up. Um, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you again next time. Cheers. <laughs>